Genesis chapter forty-four verses one to thirteen. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the man's sack with the food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent their way with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his stewards, "I'll follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, 'Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from these that my lord drinks, and by these that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this.'" When he overtook them and spoke to them these words, they said to him, "Why does my lord speak such words as these?" Far be it from you servants to do such a thing! Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then can we steal silver or gold from your lord's house? Whichever your servant is found with it shall die, and we also will be my lord's servant. He said, "Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you will be innocent." Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched and began with the oldest and ended with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. This is the word of God. This morning, we're going to be covering three chapters in the book of Genesis. We have. Uh, radically picked up our pace、um, this second half of the year as we've moved、uh, to be ready for our study in the Book of Romans, beginning in、uh, the new year. But these three chapters are really the central、uh, section of the saga of Joseph's life, and they are not just. You know, three separate chapters, but this is this is one whole part. Chapter forty-two, chapter forty-three, chapter forty-four. This is one part of that story. It is it is a whole, and really does need to be seen together. In order to understand what is happening in this text this morning, we need to remember what has happened so far in the book of Genesis as we walk through it. But we also need to see this study, this, this book of Genesis, in light of when Moses is writing it, nearly four hundred years after Joseph's life. It's the Exodus. The people of Israel have. Crossed the Red Sea, they're wandering through the wilderness, spending forty years there. Moses is during that period of time writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and concluding with Deuteronomy. And as he gives us this book of Genesis through the insights of the Holy Spirit guiding him, we begin to see a composite picture of what. Is happening in terms of eternity, not just what was happening in the lives of these individuals, but what God was doing in eternity itself, and what His plans were. 
And we see from the beginning of time, of the human race, we see the serpent, Satan, actively at work, trying to undermine God's purpose, seeking to destroy both God's creation and in particular to pollute or annihilate the very godly line that God had ordained was going to come into the world. By deceiving Eve, he succeeded in polluting the human race, leading us into rebellion against God, thinking that we were God's rather than the eternal God. And yet God had a plan. He had an eternal plan, and that included bringing forth a godly seed that would crush the head of that serpent. In an ongoing battle for the soul of the earth, Satan continuously, through the book of Genesis and all the way on through the scripture, continuously, he is seeking to undermine God's purpose. And God is countering him at every single point. Cain kills Abel, kills off the godly line, he thinks. But God brings forth Seth. The descendants of Seth that the Bible calls the sons of God intermarry with the daughters of men, which are the descendants of Cain. And in the end, they lose the godly line. It is gone. Everyone on earth is filled with wickedness and with sin. But God shows grace to Noah. Through Abraham, the promise comes. But Abraham himself almost throws it away. First by, by uh, telling that Sarah is his sister, taken into the harem first of Pharaoh and then later on of Abimelech. But God intervenes in both of those situations with dreams. And then we have Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, all of them barren, seemingly unable to have children. What is going to happen to the godly line? What is going to happen to the seed? God miraculously brings forth children of promise. Abraham's son Ishmael, Isaac's son Esau, both try to take over the inheritance. But God protects Isaac and Jacob. Judah's line is almost wiped out because of their wickedness, because of their sin. But through Tamar, God brings forth children for Judah. In all of this, God's eternal purpose, his plans set before the foundations of the world were even put into place. His purpose in bringing forth that one who would crush the serpent's head who would fulfill the promises that God gave to Adam, the promises that he gave to Seth, the promises to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. They all continued in spite of every form of opposition that the enemy sent against them. Nor did it end there. Because after Joseph, 400 years later, We have the Israelites, having been enslaved in Egypt for nearly 400 years. And yet God brings them out 
And those Israelites needed to understand that even that 400 years of slavery was part of God's purpose, part of God's plan. And that what the Egyptians meant for evil in enslaving them, God meant for good. In this story of Joseph, that truth comes out in a very lively way. It becomes best evidenced as Joseph deals with these ten older brothers who had sold him into slavery and now are coming before him and bowing before him even as his visions had indicated. As we examine these three chapters this morning, let's keep the theme from this passage in our minds. The theme, God's glory is revealed in the bringing forth of his eternal plan. We could stop there because that's, that's the critical issue. God is bringing forth his purpose, his plan. And yet, the scripture doesn't stop there. Because the scripture goes on and it says that he does it through repentant people. In other words, God's eternal plan is worked out through you and me. God's eternal plan is worked out through us who were once sinners, who were once rebels against him, who denied him and rebelled against him, and yet God in his grace, brings us into a relationship with him. And through the church, through his people, carries out his plan in the midst of this world. So let's take a look at these three chapters. Each of the chapters before us represent a a three-phase test directed by God and carried out through Joseph towards his ten brothers. The incredible wisdom of Joseph that he manifests in the preparation for the seven years of famine. Remember that? Seven years of of plenty, then seven years of famine, and and Pharaoh says, can we find anybody with the wisdom of, of, of this man? And he puts him in charge of everything, And so Joseph is there as the head over all, except for Pharaoh himself. And he reserves in those seven years of plenty food for the whole nation and for the surrounding nations. Enough so that they can survive, that they can live through seven years of famine. And that wisdom that he showed there continues as he interacts with with his ten brothers. Chapter 42 leads off with the first test. It is a test of conscience. Do these brothers have a conscience? Are they sensitive to that conscience? We all have a conscience, but are we sensitive to that conscience? The Bible says that that those who have rebelled against God have seared their conscience so that that they don't respond to what God is doing when he he calls on them. And so as we look at this passage, the question becomes, are these brothers still as hard-hearted as they were without conscience, willing to sell their brother, Joseph, off 
and then go home and act as if nothing had changed. Or have they changed? And so what we see in chapter 42 is a test of their conscience. I want you to think back. Do you know the story? To their selling Joseph. As he said, they showed no remorse. And they even go home and after giving the father this ripped up lamb's blood stained coat and said it must be a wild animal killed your son and, and, and dragged him off. And Jacob is brokenhearted. Even that didn't move their hearts to tell him the truth. That their son, his son might still be alive. No matter how hard of the weeping of Jacob, nothing had moved them 20 years earlier when they had sold off Joseph. And so, even now, they continue to talk and live as if Joseph is dead. And here they are, forced through what happens in chapter 42 to confront their sinfulness as Joseph will walk them through a reversal of what he had to endure. As they get a taste of that, how are they going to react? Joseph had an advantage over them, verse 8 and 9 tell us. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Here they are. They have, they're, they're bowing before him, just as he had dreamed. And he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Twenty years has changed him, but he also is dressed now, hair made up, everything. You know, the, the pointed beard and all the stuff that the Egyptians were. They missed him completely. He could test them without their knowing what he was doing. It was a perfect setup planned by an omniscient God through his servant, Joseph. So notice the first test of, of their conscience. It's the test of the brother's memory. Would they recall what they had done to their brother 20 years before? Joseph, we just read, remembered everything including the two dreams which were being fulfilled right before his eyes, as verse 6 says. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who had sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Oh, that must have been rich for Joseph. To see these ten brothers walk in, get that momentary I know these guys. And then to see them doing exactly what the vision that he had showed them doing. What a flashback for Joseph. Back in chapter 37, Joseph had told his brothers the dreams that he had. And they had mocked him. And as a result of those dreams... They had sold him off as a slave for 30 pieces of silver. 
Now the roles are reversed. They were the oppressors. Now the oppressors are being oppressed. Joseph could easily have punished them in any way that he wanted. He could have had them killed right there on the spot. He could have called them spies, which he says that they they might be. He could have called them spies and said, behead them. He had that authority. He had that power. But instead, he sets up a series of tests, even telling them in verse 5, that's what he's doing. He says, by this you shall be tested. Now, his test includes a number of things that are, like I said, the reversal of his own experience. They'd accused him of spying for Jacob, their father. He was spying on them and bringing bad reports about them to the father. In verse 9, he reverses it and accuses them of spying. You are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They had oppressed him and sold him off as a slave and a prisoner. He returns that favor in verse 17. And he put them all together in custody, in prison for three days. Three days is a lot shorter than 13 years. But still, it gave them a taste. He was sold as a slave for 30 pieces of silver. And now he will test them by giving them back the silver that they had paid to see whether or not they were going to sell their second brother, Simeon, who is now going to stay as a slave back in Egypt. Verse 25 indicates, Joseph gave the order to fill their bags with grain, to replace every man's money in his sack, to give them provision for the journey. This test has, however, the desired result. Verse 21 Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen, and that's why this distress has come upon us. Their conscience has been awakened. As they experienced what they had made their brother go through 20 years earlier, their conscience now is awakened. They become repentant. When we have sinned against God, God calls us to repentance. Many times the Lord will do that through a various kinds of tests that remind us of our hidden past in order that we might repent and in repenting be forgiven. But too often in the church we do a disservice. You see, what, what we try to do is... is We try to make people forget their conscience. Oh, don't worry about your past. God has forgiven it. Without repentance. Without the recognition that what I have done has been a tremendous violation against God. Remember David's word in Psalm 51? Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. When we make sin easy, our past sins and rebellion against God, when we try to just kind of shovel a little dirt over it and cover it up, 
we're doing a disservice to the Holy Spirit, who the scripture says has come to convict us. To convict us. Yes, when we are forgiven, our past is washed away under the blood of Christ. That is true. But forgiveness comes with repentance. Or as Paul puts it elsewhere, godly sorrow. If we live without a sense of the sorrow of what we have done in the past, when Paul himself knowing the grace of God as no one else perhaps understood it fully, could say of himself, I'm the chiefest of sinners because of what I did in the past. Does that mean that he was buried there? No, because elsewhere he says, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on towards what is ahead. So he, he understands that the past is forgiven, but he knew that it grace of God comes at the expense of Jesus Christ, whose payment for your sin and for mine is so deep, is so rich, is so full, but so costly, that if we don't understand the depths of our brokenness and our sin, we can never be broken vessels that are made whole. When Satan, the accuser of the brethren, loves to bring up our past sins, after we've repented of them, and after we've received that forgiveness, don't confuse that with the convicting power of the Holy Spirit who calls us to repentance and therefore to transformation and change in our lives. God sometimes has to stir up in us our memories so that we deal with our past brokenness, we deal with our past sinfulness, and receive the healing that he wants to give us in our lives. Buried sin will always haunt you until it is dealt a death blow at the cross. But notice also, there was a second part of the test in this uh, 42nd chapter. Notice the test of the brother's manipulation. 20 years earlier, Joseph's brother had sold him as that slave and then they had lied to Jacob, manipulating the facts, saying that Joseph was dead. They had covered up with a manipulation of his clothing so that through this whole time, Jacob believed that Joseph had died. And now their guilt has come back to haunt them. And Simeon, is the one chosen to pay the penalty, the price, for it by remaining in prison until they return. The brothers have stood before Joseph. And as they stood before Joseph, they continued that lie. They said to Joseph, that my father has 11 sons. And the twelfth one is no more. The twelfth one is no more. Now Joseph sets up a scenario where they can repeat that lie to their father. He has the money put back into their 
sex, but also by keeping Simeon, they could go back to the father and they could make up a story about what happened to him. Oh, he was killed on the way by a raid so that they wouldn't have to face the fact that they had to go back down. There were many things that they could have done manipulating the facts once again. But the answer comes in verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. What a difference 20 years has made in these men as the Holy Spirit is awakening their conscience and causing them to become, as they claim in the next chapter, we are honest men. In most cases, lying begets lying. But the Holy Spirit had begun a good work in these brothers. Rather than continue the lies and deceptions, they told Jacob the whole story. And I wonder how it is with you. Do you allow the Holy Spirit to prick your conscience? What hidden sins do we have that we continue to push away, to hide, to cover up that God wants us to deal with? Are we willing to face our conscience with openness and with a clean heart? Well, the test of the conscience was just the beginning of the test that Joseph was using to bring these brothers to full repentance If you're not willing to remember your past, if you're not willing to quit covering it up through manipulating the storylines as you hide the truth, then God can't take you through the next test. That's a test of chapter 43, the test of covetousness. You see, the whole situation with Joseph and with his brothers all began with Jacob showing favoritism to his youngest son at that time. Favoritism to Joseph by giving him a special coat. Now, it's not the coat of many colors that the uh, couple of the English translations have. It is the coat of leadership. It is a coat of authority that the father had given. In other words, by giving Joseph that coat, he was bypassing the ten older sons and saying, this is the one who is my firstborn. This is the one who is going to inherit my authority. And the ten older brothers were snubbed and they became jealous, covetous of that coat and of its authority. Now Joseph had to test them. Have they changed? Do they still see life through the eyes of covetousness. And so he demanded that they would bring that younger brother, who he knew was now the favorite of the father, to bring him, now that Joseph was gone. This is a difficult test for the whole family, but it was a necessary one. If Joseph is to bring them to live down in the Nile and keep them safe, For the rest of the years of famine, he needed to know that they could be trusted. If they were going to live in the Nile Delta, 
and be there in safety. But right away, we see that a change has taken place in the hearts of these individuals, especially in the heart of Judah. Look at verses 8 and 9. Chapter 43. Judah said to, the father, to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. Now, why is that important? Because it was Judah who was the one who came up with the idea to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. And yet Judah is now making himself the pledge for the safety and security of Benjamin. He knows that Benjamin is the father's favorite. And yet he is willing to put his life on the line. That is a huge change. Now, there are two ways that this concept of covetousness is now going to play out. Two things that happened to Joseph that are now going to be tested here with the brothers. And the first of those is the test of the brothers' money. You see, what was it that caused them to have Joseph sold off to the Ishmaelites? Judah says, we might as well make a profit on this. We might as well make some money. So Judah and his brothers have been willing to sell off Joseph for 30 pieces of silver. What Jacob had entrusted them with now is far more than that. Look at verse 12. It says, take double the money with you. Remember, they'd sent the money down. Joseph had it all put back in the sacks, and it all went back home. So they took back all the money. Now, he's saying, take double the money, that is the money that was put back in your sacks, take that and enough to buy more and go. Take double the money, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. And now in their bags, they carried double the money that they needed. That verse 12 is very, very important in understanding the test that these brothers are going through. They only needed to take back the amount that they needed now. They could have said, yo, guys, let's keep the extra money, right? Dad'll never know. Let's just keep that for ourselves. The test is there. It's a lot more than what they'd sold Joseph off for 20 years earlier. If they were the same men as before, they could have found a way to keep that extra. If no one asks, we don't have to give it. If they ask, we'll give it. But if they don't ask, hey, what they don't know isn't going to hurt them. Joseph had purposely put them under the test of covetousness. What would they do with that returned money that he had put in their sack? Would they keep it? Would they forfeit the freedom of Simeon? For a few pieces of silver? What was their price? Well, what's your price? What's your price for selling out the kingdom of God? 
Oh, it might not be money. Maybe it's your reputation. Perhaps it's the security of your job. Maybe it's a bowl of stew like Esau. For others, it might be a relationship with a non-Christian. Oh, Satan has so many ways to create in us covetousness. What's the price of your soul? Almost weekly, we hear of Christian leaders who fall. Christian leaders who, who you know, had preached the gospel, they had proclaimed that they were followers of Jesus Christ, and yet something comes into their life, and they forfeit Christ for whatever that thing is. Bart Campolo, preacher and son of a renowned uh, speaker, Tony Campolo, was a powerful worker in Philadelphia for the homeless and the unfortunate. And yet, he turned away and became an agnostic atheist. Aaron Rodgers, quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. Joshua Harris, author of I Kissed Dating Goodbye. So many others. They've traded their faith for fame, for relationships. Why, even Judas delivered over Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. What is your price? Fortunately, the repentance of Judah and his brothers went deeper than that covetousness. God was rooting it out of their lives. The Spirit of God was at work in them to bring them to repentance and to an understanding of what has value that lasts. Their former covetousness had become a thing of the past. Or had it? Because there is another test of that covetousness coming. A greater test. A harder test. Notice the test of the brothers' maliciousness. Jealousy had driven them to abandon their brother Joseph. Now, Joseph literally resets the table for them to do it all over again to Benjamin. Joseph, when Benjamin comes in, greets him with much more favor than he does the other ten. He had treated them harshly. He treats Benjamin as if he's a king. And then he has them all sit down by ages at the table where they're going to feast together, but he gives five times more to Benjamin than to all the others. My goodness, friends, if there was a bit of deja vu here, Boy, just like father did to Joseph, now this guy is doing the same thing to Benjamin. If they had that sense in them at all, they would have become very upset. Verses 33 and 34 say, And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portions 
five times as much as any of theirs. If there's one ounce of jealousy left in these brothers, this is going to bring it out. Joseph done everything possible to test whether or not their resentment against their father's favorite sons by his favorite wife, Rachel, was still there. He lavishes blessings on Benjamin right in front of them. Not because he is Benjamin's brother by the same mother, but to test whether the other ten have lost their malicious attitude. The final line of chapter 43 gives us the answer. And they drank and were merry with him. You get that? They drank and they were merry with him. The brothers simply enjoyed the meal with a sense of gratitude that they'd been included, that Simeon was restored to them, that all was going well, and they ignored the fact that their brother, Benjamin, was being treated in such lavish ways. But the story doesn't end there. There is a third major test that comes to us in chapter 44. And this is a test of compassion. You see, it's one thing to have everything work out okay. It's not like Joseph starved them, even though they weren't treated as well as Benjamin. They still got a good, solid meal. Reuben, the oldest, had had already failed to be a major influence in the family. Simeon was happy to be out of prison. Judah, however has proven to be the leader in everything so far. Joseph doesn't know what Judah said to Jacob when they were back home, that he would be the pledge for Benjamin. He doesn't know that. But because Judah has been the leader in everything so far, he is about to be put to the test. Joseph sets up the final and ultimate scenario. This test of compassion in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 44, which we read this morning. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sacks of the youngest with his money for the grain. Now, our text doesn't bring this out, but remember it says that all 12 of the sacks of food, all 12 of them were opened, right? What is lying right on top of each of those sacks? The double money. Can you imagine what is going through? They're looking for this cup But in order to sort through that grain, they've got to lift that money up and put it down. Can you imagine what's going on in the minds of these brothers? (laughs) I don't know where that came from, man. I didn't put it there. Do you put it there? Okay. Now, they just told them that we're honest. We're honest men. And you've got 
sacks of money sitting on top as if they had all stolen, not just the cup. And here they are, protesting their innocence and their honesty. Really? Well, here we are. Everything so far being a test. We don't know whether the steward knew what was going on in all of this, whether Joseph had let him in on it. He certainly knew where he had put the cup and, why, and how he was supposed to do this. But now these brothers, who had not shown a modicum of mercy or concern for Joseph, now is coming to Benjamin. Will the brothers pass or fail in this final test? Will Judah show the colors have changed, that his colors have changed, or will he show that he still is the same man as before? Notice the test then, first of all, is a test of the brothers' mercy. Mercy in this compassion. Jacob had prayed that God would show them mercy as they traveled. God wasn't the problem. Would they show mercy to one another? I failed to show it to Joseph. Now Benjamin's on the hot seat. Will they show it to him? Shortly after the 11 brothers had headed for home, Joseph sends the steward and the soldiers after them to search for that special cup. The brothers protest their innocence. They protest their honesty. But were they being honest? Were they being honest with what they had done to Joseph 20 years earlier? Were they facing their past? It was deja vu all over again, and this time with Benjamin. The steward begins his search, and he ends with Benjamin, the youngest. In verse 12 and 13, it says, And he searched, beginning with the eldest, ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkeys, and they returned to the city. The brothers had passed the first part of this test. They could have abandoned Benjamin. They could have just loaded up their donkeys and said, Man, I don't know why he did that, but, you know, we're sorry. You know, and headed on home. They had done it to Joseph. Why not to Benjamin? For the sake of the father they had once deceived, and for this younger brother who had become the father's favorite, they were willing to turn around and go back and face the wrath of Joseph. They were willing to sacrifice their freedom and even their own lives for his sake. I wonder, my friends, how about us? Are we willing to sacrifice for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we willing to sacrifice all for our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ? For the sake of our eternal Father, are we willing to sacrifice? He has shown us mercy. 
Will we respond by living fully surrendered to him, completely giving our all for him? But notice the test of the brothers mourning their repentance. You see, in the end, it comes down again to Judah. Will Judah sacrifice himself as he told his father that he would for the sake of Benjamin? He tells Joseph of the promise that he made to his father. He tells him in verses uh, 32 and 33. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. Judah, who had been the one who orchestrated the selling of Joseph, now has dramatically had a heart change. He was willing to take his brother's punishment, whether it be death or whether it be slavery. As Christians, we're called by God to love our neighbor as ourselves. Too often we make excuses why that doesn't apply to this situation in my life. But there was one, a descendant of Judah, who would not just offer to take our place, but literally did. You see, Benjamin really wasn't guilty of any crime, and Joseph knew that. But you and I, we are wicked sinners. In Romans, we are told that for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, when God puts us to the test through the Josephs in our lives, we tend to fail. We quench our conscience. We persist in our covetousness. And we fail to show compassion to the hurting. But as Romans 7 concludes, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ, God is able to send the Holy Spirit who pricks our conscience, who removes our covetous heart, and who raises the level of our compassion as he transforms our heart from glory to glory. This descendant of Judah is the one who took our place, and through him died so that we might not have to, even though we were enemies. May God stir our hearts today. If there are the things in our past that we have buried away, we've hidden them away, we've covered them over, and we've tried to forget them for the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but we've never dealt with them at the cross of Jesus Christ, then may today the Holy Spirit convict us as he did those brothers and cause our hearts to turn from that sin, to have godly sorrow and brokenness over it, that he might take those broken vessels of our lives and might remake them into that 
treasure. The gospel of Jesus Christ worked out in us. In conclusion, how has God worked in your life to bring a true repentance and transformation? If you are truly a child of God, then you can say with Paul, I am the chiefest of sinners. I can look at my past. I can see what I have done. I can see my rebellion against God. I know that I deserve damnation. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Are you still clinging to the past hurts? Or are you letting the Lord bring you through to victory? He did that in Joseph. He did it in Joseph's brothers. He'll do it in you. If you let him, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we look at these tests that Joseph put his brothers through, and we see your hand in them. For true repentance is not simply saying, God, forgive me of whatever I've done in my past, but true repentance is facing the fact that those things that we have done in our past have consequences. We have sinned against God, and we have hurt many. We thank you that as you convict us, O Holy Spirit, of that sin and of that brokenness, that we can come to the throne of grace and find mercy and forgiveness and life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.